Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 356, Macbeth. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Philip, Aranya, and Stacy for signing up already. Oh, and before we start, I should point out that I apparently mispronounced Murray for the entirety of the last episode, calling it Moray. Sorry about that. And thank you so much to Maya and Andrew for providing me with readings of some of the trickier names that are appearing in this episode. And hopefully my anglophonic tongue won't butcher them too much. Today we're doing the story of Macbeth. And if you have just tuned into this episode because of the title, please know that it is the second episode in a two-part series. So you're going to want to go back to episode 355, Double Double Toil and Trouble, and listen to that first. There you will learn about the peculiar region that spawned this shadowy Highland King. It will also explain why so much of this episode is going to involve words like possibly, probably, and likely. Because like the play bearing the same name, we're dealing with prophecies, riddles, and shadowy details. And it all leaves us reading tea leaves as if we were witches in the wood. In the early 11th century, King Malcolm II of Scotland was hard at work shoring up his political future. And for good reason. Scottish kings didn't live too long after they took the throne. So Malcolm did what kings of this era often did. He used marriages to buy allies. At least, we're pretty sure that he did that. We don't have a lot of contemporary Scottish material detailing Malcolm II's reign. And we have even less detail about his daughters. And this means that we're picking through records that are foreign or written much later, or both. But if the records we have are telling the truth, King Malcolm II arranged for a marriage between one of his daughters and the abbot of Dunkeld, who also might have been the Moor mayor of Athol. A few years later, Malcolm married another daughter to Jarl Sigurd of Orkney. And then finally, he married another close family member, or possibly his daughter, to Finlay, the Moor mayor of Murray. But always keep in mind that our sources for this are not great. For example, the same record that tells us of the marriage of one daughter to Jarl Sigurd of Orkney also tells us that the Jarl defeated Mormay of Finlay using a magic banner. Yeah, sagas, man. One part Avengers assemble and one part real people. But in this case, historians do suspect that the bit about the marriage was probably true. Probably. And again, assuming that these records are actually telling the truth, all three of these marriages also produce children. So by about 1010, Malcolm had at least three grandsons. The first was Duncan, the child of Bethok and Crinan. The next was Thorfinn Sigurdsson, who would eventually become known as Jarl Thorfinn the Mighty, a man that Snorri would later describe as the most powerful Jarl that Orkney had ever seen. And then finally, there was Macbeth. There is a wrinkle to this, though. There are some who believe that Thorfinn and Macbeth were actually the same person. And while sometimes people are known by different names in different regions, in this case, the Thorfinn-Macbeth theory didn't originate with a historian. Instead, it came from a historical fiction novel written by Dorothy Dunnett. Now, her novels are popular, and the idea behind it is rather exciting, 
So there's been a small but vocal group of people who push this belief pretty vigorously. But I can't find any serious academic work that actually backs it up. So we're just going to set it aside in the pile of entertainingly plausible fiction. And unless some new primary source comes to light that states otherwise, we're going to assume that Thorfinn and Macbeth were different people. And if the sources are accurate, both were grandsons of King Malcolm II. Now, we don't know when Macbeth was born, though you will often hear the year 1005. We also don't know where he was born, though it probably was in Murray. We suspect that he was a descendant of the Kenelurn, a lesser line of the kings of the Dalriada. Probably. Maybe. The fact is, the reconstruction of his lineage is based entirely on an Irish genealogy that may or may not have been fabricated. So it's a big question mark on his life. And also, it's a good example of the danger of repeatedly clicking fabricate claims in CK2, because you're going to make future historians all stressed out. Now, as for where Macbeth lived, well, a 15th century chronicler named Andrew of Wintoun wrote that Macbeth lived in the king's house as a child. But Andrew was writing centuries later, and we can't find a similar claim in any contemporary account. Furthermore, we know that Andrew regularly made errors identifying individuals. For example, he actually claimed that Macbeth was living in King Duncan's house when he was a child. And that would have made no sense given the timeline. It only makes sense if Macbeth was living in King Malcolm II's house. And it is entirely within reason that Andrew had just mixed up the names. But with mistakes like that, it's hard to be sure that the solution is a simple mix-up and not a total fabrication. But in support of this account, we do know that fostering noble children was common in Scotland, just like it was in England. And given the nature of the kingdom and how King Malcolm didn't have any sons, it is entirely plausible that Malcolm was fostering his grandsons in a strategy to secure his northern flank. I mean, making sure that the future rulers of the northern regions felt a familial connection to their southern relatives to the throne was a pretty good idea. It would have been similar to how King Athelstan used fostering to influence generations of rulers in England's surrounding regions and kingdoms. Furthermore, there are other records of Malcolm fostering his grandsons. In the Orkneyinga saga, we're told that Thorfinn lived with King Malcolm II. And it was there, when he was only five years old, that young Thorkin received word that his father, Jarl Sigurd, had been killed in battle for Dublin. So the court of King Malcolm II very well may have been home to at least two of his grandsons, and maybe all three. And it would have been in the king's home where they would have learned the ropes of what it meant to be a ruler. And so if all this information is correct, we're seeing that King Malcolm II was a clever Scottish ruler. He would neutralized nearly every threat that lay to his north. And that meant that he could focus his attentions on the south. And by 1016... King Malcolm II and the Scots had seized Lothian. And by 1018, they got their revenge for Durham and defeated the Northumbrians at Carham and advanced to the River Tweed, which has since become the modern border of Scotland. Strathclyde was also incorporated into the Kingdom of the Scots some time after 1018, though they were already close with the Scots, having fought alongside them at Carham. And with this southward expansion came an increasing degree of cultural mixing. And this brought the cultural elements of the English and the Britons northward into Scotland. And that meant 
that Scotland was changing, and so was the Scottish throne. As contact between the peoples increased, these new cultural practices were integrated, and Malcolm was looking at one of these practices in particular, primogeniture. These English handled monarchy in a very different way from the Scottish, and it had an immediate appeal to whoever was holding the Scottish throne and to their eldest son. But there was one small issue. You might have noticed that we've heard about King Malcolm II's daughters, but we haven't heard of any of his sons. And that's because he didn't have any sons that we know of. And by this point, he was probably in his 60s. So as Malcolm took an interest in primogeniture, is it possible that he was doing that thing that some men do, where they pretend they are somehow immune to aging and still have plenty of time to have kids? Or was he just pinning all his hopes on his eldest grandson? If he had a diary, it didn't survive the passing of time, so we'll probably never know. But if the plan was to impose primogeniture, the lack of a son did make things a little more complex. And that might be exactly why we have records indicating that the king's court was full of his own grandsons. This really was King Malcolm II's best chance to centralize power in his family's branch, and hopefully put an end to the costly blood feud that had been raging for generations. And so, despite the lack of a son, King Malcolm II pushed forward on the implementation of primogeniture for the Scottish throne. And he was doing it all while Macbeth was growing up, possibly under the same roof. Now, unfortunately, we don't know much else about the childhood of Macbeth. I mean, given his station and parentage, it's likely that he had a typical upbringing for a noble boy. And it's likely that any time he wasn't spending in the Scottish royal court would have been instead spent in the court of his father, Mormare Finlay. And so we can also assume that the young Macbeth was also being shaped by the unique culture and situation of Murray. Throughout Macbeth's childhood, Mormare Finlay and the region of Murray were regularly involved in military conflicts. For example, that fight with Sigurd that involved a magic banner had almost certainly taken place while Macbeth was a child. And while Finlay did survive that fight, you have to imagine that knowing your father had lost a battle with Orkney and he could have died in the exchange would have had an impact upon a young developing mind. He also likely knew that his cousin Thorfinn had lost his father in battle when he was only about five years old. So the weight of Macbeth's position, if it wasn't already apparent, very well may have sunk in when he saw Thorfinn, who was still a young child, being separated from his brothers and installed by his grandfather, King Malcolm II, as the ruler of Caithness and Sutherland. And while King Malcolm did provide the young boy with some Scottish advisors to help him, the trauma of that event would have been significant. And likely watching all of it was young Macbeth, likely pretty close to Thorfinn in age. So he probably realized that at any time, this same thing could happen to him. Furthermore, the blood feuds of Scotland weren't constrained to the Royal Scottish Court of Dunkeld. Murray was also racked by these kinds of conflicts. And the Moore Mayorship of Murray had its own dynastic struggle that had, in the past, bubbled over into violence and murder. The fact was that life in Murray was characterized by an omnipresent specter of war and death. And it was this culture that Macbeth was born into. And for the young boy, that exposure no doubt normalized Murray's permanent war footing that it 
and other marcher cultures were developing. And so time spent in court would have provided Macbeth with plenty of opportunities to learn about war. And that was good, because rulers of this period were generals. And as Murray was on the frontier, it regularly found itself in conflict with Orkney. As such, Macbeth was likely trained in all the martial skills that would have been necessary to govern Murray when his time came. And this was probably a focus for his guardians regardless of whether or not he was in the court of Murray or the court of Scotland. Both courts had a vested interest in the boy knowing how to lead men in war. And that was likely Macbeth's childhood. A youth spent moving between two courts, absorbing their cutthroat cultures, and learning the ways and consequences of war. And then 1020 happened. We're told that Mormaer Finlay was killed. And in the Irish annals, we're told that he was killed by his own people. Another annal adds that he was killed by the sons of his own brother, male Brigda. And there's a good chance that this male Brigda was the same man who is reported as having died in battle with the Northmen in the Orkney and Gasaga. So there's a really good chance here that male Brigda was the Mormaer before Finlay. And as such, he was likely his older brother. And that would have meant that male Brigda's sons were probably next in line for the Mormaerdom. And wouldn't you know it? The man who immediately claimed Murray was Malcolm MacMail Brigda, as in Malcolm, the son of Male Brigda. And all of this suggests that Finlay, like many Scottish rulers, was murdered by his direct successor, Finlay's own nephews, Malcolm MacBrigda and Gilly MacBrigda. This system of succession was nothing if not deadly. And so in an instant, Macbeth was without a father, and it was probably his own cousins who were responsible. And now Macbeth also had to deal with the fact that he was probably seen as a threat by this new Mormaer, given his position on the line of succession. So suddenly this teenage Macbeth had been tossed into the blender of medieval Scottish politics, and his one saving grace was likely that he was personally close with King Malcolm II. And there's actually a good chance that at this point, Macbeth was in the court of King Malcolm, which very well may have been how he avoided assassination himself. But even if he was in Murray and he was spared or somehow managed to escape, there's a very good chance that he immediately fled to the court of King Malcolm II. And a tactical retreat made a lot of sense in this circumstance, because given his position on the line of succession, all he really needed to do here is live until Mormaer Malcolm MacBrigda died. That's all. And then Murray would be his, because he was next in the line of succession. And as for what happened with Murray, well, not much is known about the rule of Mormaer Malcolm MacBrigda. We have a record of him giving some lands to a religious house, but we really don't have much else regarding his rule. We don't know what he was up to, how he approached succession, how he dealt with his neighbors, what, if anything, he did about Macbeth? Nothing. It's all a black hole until 1029, because on that year, we're told that he died. Now, we're not told that he was killed by anyone, just that he died. And so there is a good chance here that he died of natural causes. He might have just fallen to a simple illness. But however he died, 
This meant that Murray was going to go to the next in line, which almost certainly meant that it was Macbeth's time to rule. And so, in 1029, the Mormaerdom of Murray was passed to Gilly, the brother of Malcolm McBrigda. It looks like King Malcolm II of Scotland wasn't the only one who wanted to change how succession worked and consolidate things onto his own line. And so now Gilly was ruling Murray. And the reign of Gilly, like his brother Malcolm's, is poorly recorded and we don't know much about him or what he did with the region. But Macbeth suddenly appears in the record. Well, the English record in 1031. We're told by the English scribes that on 1031, which would have been two years after Gilly's succession to the Moor Mayor of Murray, King Malcolm II met with King Canute of England, and he offered him his submission, and he arrived with two kings. One was named Emark, and the other was named Macbeth. Now, as we already know, the English scribes screwed up here. King Malcolm II of Scotland was definitely a king, but the two men that he was accompanied with weren't. However, their inclusion in this record and how they're described still tells us a lot. For example, it tells us where Macbeth was following the death of his father. And it also provides further support for the suggestion that Macbeth was fostered by King Malcolm II and that they were likely close. Furthermore, the fact that the scribes thought Macbeth was a king suggests that he was treated with a lot of dignity and respect in the court of Scotland. And this is a critical piece of information, because at this point, Macbeth's cousin, Gilly, had been ruling over Murray for two years, which was a position that rightfully belonged to Macbeth. So Gilly was, at least as far as how things traditionally went, a usurper. So it's possible that the respect and dignity that was afforded Macbeth, as well as his presence at the meeting with Canute, indicates that King Malcolm II supported Macbeth's claim to Murray, and he didn't recognize the legitimacy of Mormare Gilly. Though, if that's true, it's anyone's guess how much Mormare Gilly would have cared. Murray was famously independent, and to be honest, the hills were covered in the blood of Scottish kings who had overestimated their influence over the highlands. So even if Gilly knew what was happening in the southern court, I doubt that he was all that concerned. Besides, Gilly was married to Gruach, the daughter of Boita, son of Kenneth. And Kenneth, in this case, meant either King Kenneth II or King Kenneth III. And that meant that Gilly was married either to the niece of King Malcolm II, or at the very least, King Malcolm II's cousin. Not only that, but it appears that Gruach's brother, or perhaps her nephew, was next in line for the throne of Scotland. I know I threw a lot of information at you there, but basically Gilly had tied himself in with the royal line of Dunkeld. The fact is, Gilly might have been ruling beyond the Grampian Mountains, but he was still playing the political games that influenced the Scottish court. And then, in the following year of 1032, there was a fire. We don't know precisely where this fire happened, nor how it happened, but the tone of the record suggests that it was no accident. This era consists of unending factional violence, and the Scottish system of succession only made things worse. 
It had only been 12 years since Gilly and his brother had killed Macbeth's father, Mormare Finlay, and through that act of political violence, they seized control of the region. Now, Gilly may have thought that he could have avoided future blood feuds by disinheriting Macbeth and seizing Murray for himself upon his brother's death, basically eliminating this system of succession and consolidating things on his line. And if that had been his plan, you can imagine his disappointment as he huddled with his 50 companions, who were probably his personal guard, and watched the flames climb the walls around him. There's no mention of a battle. So there's a good chance that Gilly and his warband were either taken by surprise, or they realized they couldn't win in a direct fight and taken shelter in a feasting hall, a fortress, or possibly a monastery or other holy building. Maybe they were in there waiting for reinforcements, but if that's the case, none came. And Mormair Gilly, along with his 50 men, were burned to death. Immediately afterwards, Macbeth married Gilly's widow, Gruach, and took on her son, Lilach, as his ward. And as for Murray, well, Macbeth took that as well. And this has led many scholars to the conclusion that Gilly and his personal guard were killed as the result of factional warfare, either in support of or under the command of his closest rival, Macbeth. But let's pause here for a minute because I bet some Shakespeare fans got really excited when they heard about Macbeth marrying and are probably wondering if this is Lady Macbeth. Well, yes and no. Gruach was Lady Macbeth, but Shakespeare played it really fast and loose with her history here. The character of Lady Macbeth is actually multiple figures. And the truth is that we actually don't know all that much about Lady Macbeth the person. We do know that she was a member of the royal dynasty of Scotland and from a rival branch of King Malcolm II. We know that she had a brother or a nephew who was likely next in line for the throne of Scotland. And we know that she had a son with Gilly named Lilach. And the fact that she married Gilly makes it possible that the other branch of the Scottish royal line the rivals to King Malcolm II, were also looking to secure the region of Murray for themselves. So Grok's marriage to Gilly had serious implications for the throne of Scotland, and for King Malcolm II in particular. And while we don't have any records of her bullying people into regicide or struggling with sleepwalking, that doesn't mean that she wasn't important. This marriage to Gilly meant that Malcolm II's main rivals were now allied with the warrior region of Murray. And considering that one of their number was waiting in line for the throne, Malcolm II likely saw that the wolves were circling. But just one brief Highlander barbecue and all that had changed. Murray was now under the command of Macbeth, a man who is reported to have been Malcolm's grandson, his foster ward, and if his treatment at the Scottish court was any indication, a close ally. And now with this marriage to Gruach, Malcolm's rival line was also tied closer to him. Macbeth had even taken her son, Lilach, as his ward, which meant that one of the potential claimants to the Scottish throne would now be under the control of Malcolm's ally. And if you were looking to bring an end to the endless cascade of cousins killing cousins, well, if we assume that Macbeth really was Malcolm's grandson, well, marrying him to a member of the rival royal line would have been a pretty good way to handle it. 
there was the potential here to heal the rift and create a single dynastic line. So long as you ignore the fact that a whole bunch of murder had to happen in order to pull it off. And this little consolidation even had the potential to heal the dynastic rift that had been tearing at Murray. Macbeth had avenged his father's murder, but by marrying Gilly's widow and adopting his son, well, that had the potential to stop the blood feud. And of course, because Macbeth and Malcolm were close, they could finally establish a functional relationship between Murray and Dunkeld. So it's likely that Macbeth was behind the fiery demise of Gilly and his men. But behind Macbeth was probably King Malcolm II. And he was focused like a laser on reforming Scottish succession. And in the following year of 1033, King Malcolm II made his next move. Now, by this point, he'd been on the throne for nearly 30 years. And that's a long time for any medieval monarch. But for a king of Scotland, it must have been like he was immortal. Except, he wasn't. And one of the leading causes of death for Scottish kings was other Scots. Usually, Scots who wanted that throne. And the older that Malcolm got, the more likely it was that these rivals were going to get impatient. And there's one claimant in particular here that is of interest. The Annals of Ulster refer to him as the grandson of Boita, son of Kenneth, which would make this man Lady Macbeth's nephew. Now, the Scottish sources don't have much to share on this guy, and the Irish sources are, well, pretty terse. But the record tells us that in 1033, just one year after Macbeth sees Murray, not to mention a new family, while his predecessor was likely still smoldering, King Malcolm II made his move, and he killed this grandson of Boita. Now, this is the second time that the records mention Boita, because if you remember back, Lady Macbeth was specifically identified as being Boita's daughter. The sources also point out that he was the son of Kenneth, meaning either King Kenneth II or King Kenneth III. So all of this means that Boita was a figure of significant political power, and he likely had a claim to the throne at some point. And it's his line that King Malcolm II was ultimately going to disinherit by moving over to primogeniture. So it's possible that in the face of this, Boita's grandson led a rebellion against King Malcolm II, seeking to press his claims. And then he failed. It's also possible that Malcolm realized that this grandson was the last serious threat to his dynasty, and so he took the matter into his own hands before a rebellion could even start. And Boita only had one other grandson that we know of, and he had just been adopted by Macbeth. And by this point, King Malcolm II had declared that the heir to the kingdom wouldn't be a member of this rival branch. Instead, it would be his own grandson, Duncan. Now, John of Forden, who was writing over 300 years later, adds that Duncan had been appointed as the ruler of Cumbria, which, if true, might have been intended to serve as a sort of starter kingdom, similar to how the West Saxon kings dealt with the joint thrones of Kent and Wessex. But whether or not Duncan was already governing Cumbria, with the announcement of Malcolm's intended heir, one thing was clear. The line of Boita was out and the line of Malcolm was in. We aren't told what Lady Macbeth thought about this, 
because unfortunately, no one was recording Grok's thoughts. Actually, we don't even know what Macbeth thought about any of this. And it's not clear that he would have been particularly happy about it. The fact is that Duncan was linked to the nearby house of Athol, so it's very possible that Macbeth feared Duncan's rise to the throne because it could actually undercut the influence of Murray. And as for Lady Macbeth, well, given that Malcolm had just killed her kin right on the heels of her husband being burned to death, well, I can't imagine she was all that enthused. But unfortunately, the records don't tell us any details. All we know is that on 1034, just one year after the murder of Boita's grandson, King Malcolm II died. And as is the way with this period, the primary accounts don't tell us how it happened. There is an account of this event left to us in the prophecy of Burkhan. But remember, while this record is contemporary, it's also a frigging prophecy. So take it with a grain of salt. But the prophecy says King Malcolm II died in battle, fighting his own kin. Quote, he will conquer 10 battles, angels who have prophecy. 35 years and his time over Scotland in high kingship until the day he goes to battle in meeting with the kinslayers to a swift leap in the morning at the mountain. Woe to Scotland facing them. See, a prophecy. But another account, the Chronicle of Melrose, also claims that King Malcolm II, quote, perished underfoot after laying low the enemy, end quote and names the place of his killing as the village of Glamis. So we have the impression here that King Malcolm, rather than dying of natural causes, was killed in a battle, likely in interdynastic violence, which would be pretty typical for this era. And then about 300 years later, John of Forden adds significant detail to our picture. John tells us that the king was killed by the surviving sons of male Brigda. It turned out that when Gilly, son of Male Brigda, and his 50 men were burned alive, he wasn't the last son of Male Brigda. And apparently these guys were not happy with the way their brother had been barbecued. So according to John, they ambushed King Malcolm II, and in the fighting, the king was wounded. And three days later, he died. And it's tempting to trust John here. The idea that King Malcolm II had fallen prey to Murray like so many other Scottish kings had done before him, feels believable. But remember, John was writing over 300 years after these events, and he was also clearly inspired by the prophecy of Burkhan. So while this is a possible account of what happened, it is also just as likely to be untrue. The truth is, we're probably not going to know how King Malcolm died. If there is a straightforward record, it's not been found. And given that the accounts of a violent death all trace back to a prophecy, we can't even be sure that it happened in a battle. It's possible that Malcolm II just died because he was getting kind of old. But however he met his end, King Malcolm II did accomplish his goal. When he died, his grandson, Duncan, became king. Malcolm had done it. He had passed the kingdom to his direct heir and Scotland broke from its traditional and particularly bloody form of succession. And Duncan was ready. His parents had significant power in Dunkeld and likely Athol. John of Forden also claims that Duncan held power over Cumbria. 
And as for Duncan's closest political rivals, well, it seems that his grandfather had done everything he could to stamp out any threat from that area. And something equally important but easy to overlook is where Duncan was, like physically, because it looks like Duncan was already in the south of the kingdom when Malcolm died. And that meant that he could undergo the ceremony of enthronement at Schoon very quickly, before, say, any other grandsons might try and beat him to it. So the circumstances lined up perfectly for Duncan's ascension. And it appears that a lot of work went into this, so he had better live up to the task. And if he did, well, we don't know about it. John of Forden actually states that, quote, nothing worthy of mention happened in the kingdom during this short time of Duncan's reign, end quote. Ouch. Now, there are some who claim that Forden is wrong here and that Duncan was a warlike king. These people believe that the real exploits of King Duncan are recorded in the Orkneyinga saga under a different name, Carl Hundeson. But the contemporary accounts that we have say nothing at all about Duncan. And most scholars believe that the feats of Carl Hundeson are actually about another man entirely. Macbeth. Duncan, from what we can put together, seemed to actually stick to politics rather than war. With his cousin Thorfinn ruling in Orkney, and his other likely cousin, Macbeth, ruling in Murray, King Duncan kept himself occupied with Scotland's southern border. And down there was none other than King Canute, as well as the lords of Northumbria. They posed a significant threat to his rule. And so Duncan used his most potent weapon he had. Weddings. Duncan had a younger brother named Maldred, who was unmarried at the time. And so he had him marry Eldgith, who wasn't only the granddaughter of King Athelred Unred, but she was also the daughter of Earl Uhtred the Bold of Northumbria. It was a good match. Now granted, King Athelred Unred had lost his throne to Canute, and Earl Uhtred had died some years earlier, being murdered by Thurbrand during a bit of nasty palace intrigue. And then Uhtred's son, Eldred, murdered Thurbrand in revenge. It's a bit of classic Northumbrian politics, which you can revisit in episodes 336 and 337. But, political killings aside, the power of Uhtred the Bold lived on in the region. And Eldgith was his daughter, and her family was very influential in Northumbrian politics. And by the time that Duncan became king of Scotland, her brother Eldred, the one who killed Thurbrand, was now the Earl of Northumbria. And critically, their family's power center was primarily in the northern portion of the earldom. Which meant that when Duncan married his brother to Eldgith, he was making friends with his closest English neighbor. And a very powerful one at that. But Northumbria was large. And the old territory of Bernicia, which is where the family of Uhtred the Bold held the most sway, was only one part of it. There was also the southern portion, which was dominated by the politics of Jorvik, which was now becoming known as York. Recently, King Canute had appointed a Dane named Siward as the Earl of York. And this Earl Siward was influential, ambitious, and he was close with the King of England. He also needed a wife. So King Duncan arranged for another marriage. Duncan offered Southern, who was a close relative of his and probably his sister, to Siward. 
and with that union, Duncan forged another link with his southern neighbors. Duncan was making sharp political moves here that were aimed at securing Scotland as a long-term ally of Canute's growing empire. And then Canute died. And suddenly, power structures that felt like they were locked in cement began to move freely. And all this careful planning went straight to hell, because the Northumbrian blood feuds were back on. It turned out that Thurbrand had a son. His name was Carl. And in 1038, Carl murdered Earl Eldred of Northumbria. And to recap, because there's a lot of killing here, Carl had murdered Eldred in revenge for the killing of Thurbrand. Eldred had murdered Thurbrand in revenge for the killing of Uhtred. And Thurbrand had murdered Uhtred because he was acting under orders of, wait for it, Edric Strayona. <laughs> anyway, so King Duncan's brother-in-law, Earl Eldred of Northumbria, was dead. And the earldom had been inherited by another son of Uhtred the Bold. His name was Adolf. And Earl Adolf apparently didn't feel the same degree of kinship to Scotland that his brother did. Because he immediately launched a war where he, quote, ravaged the Britons with sufficient ferocity, end quote. The Britons here were the people of Cumbria, which was currently under Scottish control and was even purportedly being governed by the king's son. So this English raid very well could have been seen as a direct assault on Scottish royal authority. And in response, in 1039 or 1040, King Duncan marched on Northumbria. His target was Durham. We don't know exactly what his plan was. It might have been to punish Earl Adolf for the raid of Cumbria. It may have also been to showcase Duncan's military might, which was expected of Scottish kings. It could have also been for reasons that we have no idea of. But one thing we can be certain of is that Duncan probably didn't plan on annexing the city. Durham was just too far south to make it part of Scotland, so there's no point in attempting to hold it. This was a raid, and Duncan probably had his eyes set on the riches that were kept in the local monastery. But Durham was an infamously dangerous target. It was a city that was surrounded on three sides by a river. So when you look at Durham, it feels like it's almost specifically built to resist besieging armies. And out of all the Northumbrian towns to take, Durham was one of the most difficult. In fact, Duncan's own grandfather, King Malcolm II, had nearly lost it all in an attempt to take the city back in 1006. He and his Scottish forces were crushed by Uhtred the Bold. So you have to wonder why Duncan thought that he could succeed where his grandfather had failed. But he led a massive army to Durham. And there, the Scots fought hard. And they lost. Quote, a large proportion of his cavalry was slain by the besieged, and he was put to a disorderly flight, in which he lost all his foot soldiers, whose heads were collected in the marketplace and hung up on posts. End quote. Following that, King Duncan, and whatever was left of his army, tucked tail and ran back to Scotland. And just like that, all suspicions about him were confirmed. Duncan was not the kind of leader that Scotland needed. Scotland needed a general. And if you were in the north looking for a general, there was only one stop that you needed to make. Murray. 
And just like that, there was a rift that appeared between King Duncan and Mormare Macbeth. And so King Duncan took his army and he marched up to Murray in 1040 to have a little chat. Now there's no record of exactly what caused this rift, but to my mind, there are two likely possibilities. The first is that when King Duncan marched on Northumbria, he had called for Murray to help, and Macbeth held his forces back. In that case, you could imagine that Duncan would have blamed Macbeth for the slaughter at Durham, and now he felt he needed to reassert just who was in charge here. And I feel like this is made more likely given that Macbeth had the title of Dukes, meaning he was a general. The slightly less likely possibility is that upon seeing the disaster of Durham, Mormayor Macbeth did what other Highland Mormayors had done in the past, and he told the Scottish throne that Murray was independent. And so Duncan then had to go up there and try and tell Murray that actually, no, they weren't. They had a boss. But either way, just one year after the disaster at Durham, King Duncan scraped together what forces remained to him and marched north into Murray. And it's there, in Murray, where King Duncan dies. Later records give us a potential date and place of Duncan's demise. They report that it happened on August 14th of 1040 at Bothkavnain, an area that's thought to be modern-day Pitcavney. Now, Pitcavney is pretty and green and surrounded by gentle hills. And it's also about a dozen miles east of Forez and sits on the mouth of the Murray Firth, meaning that it's deep, deep in the territory of the Mormares of Murray. And also, as it's close to Forez, it's dangerously close to a city that is connected to the death of multiple Scottish kings. And as for how he died? Well, John of Forden claims, again, writing 300 years after the fact, that Macbeth was conspiring to kill Duncan. He even says that Macbeth's family were responsible for the killing of King Malcolm II and King Kenneth II. But we can't find anything that confirms that from the contemporary records. While it is possible that this is a multi-generation murderous rampage, it seems much more likely to me that King Duncan was marching north in a punitive effort to reassert Scottish supremacy over Murray, and it went bad. But whether it was all part of a family business, or just a response to another Scottish king marching on Murray, the records do indicate that King Duncan died at the hands of the Scots, likely either directly by Macbeth himself, or at least acting under his command. Because the annals of Tigernach tell us the king was killed by his own people. And then the Chronicle of Marianus adds that Duncan was killed by Macbeth, something that is also confirmed in the regnal lists. Unfortunately, we don't know how it happened. We don't know if there was a battle, or treachery, or even if there was a stain that just wouldn't come out. Nothing. We only know that following the death of King Duncan, something extraordinary happened. Something that had never happened before. For generations, Scottish kings had met their ends at the hands of the men of Murray. And every time, the House of Dunkeld selected a new king from the royal line. Not once in this bloody history had Murray sought the Scottish throne. If the region had a character it would have been its fierce independence 
not its ambition. But Macbeth was married to a member of the House of Dunkeld, and he was very possibly the grandson of King Malcolm II. And perhaps critically here, he had proven himself to be precisely the type of king that Scotland needed. He was ruthless, he was decisive, and he was a war leader. And in 1040, with Duncan dead and buried at Elgin, Macbeth took the throne of Scotland. In just eight years and two murders, a disinherited homeless orphan had transformed himself into Macbeth, King of the Scots. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for sticking with me on this episode. I know it's a little bit late coming out, and I know my voice is already hoarse from the smoke. But I appreciate your patience, and hopefully by the time I'm recording the next one, the skies will clear. Thanks for listening. Illustrated.